Okay, we're going to be in Acts chapter 24 this morning. Acts 24. And while you're finding your place, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll get into our study this morning. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for those who have gathered out here today, Lord, for their desire to be in church, Lord, for their faithfulness to your house. Lord, we just pray ask you that you would uh, be with us today as we uh, get into your word and as we study it. Lord, I just pray that it would be a help and an encouragement with each person here that they would uh, get from the service exactly that which is needed. I pray, Lord, that you be with those who are still on their way out this morning, those who are unable to be here. And Lord, just help us as a church to be a light and a witness to uh, the community about us. We want to be be able to uh, point them to you. We want to see folks saved, Lord. And Lord, we just ask you to be with our fellowship with one another. And help me now as I teach, Lord, just guide and direct my thoughts. Uh, bring back to remembrance the things that we've studied, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things that we pray in Jesus' name. And amen. Okay, Acts chapter 24 is where we're at. And we've been looking at Paul after he has uh, been arrested. And so we're seeing uh, Christianity under examination. He is going to be going through several different uh, trials. He's going to have several opportunities to speak on his behalf. But what we were looking at last week, uh, Paul had addressed the crowd there in Jerusalem after he was arrested. And whenever... Um, Whenever he spoke a word about the, the Gentiles, the crowd went mad and uh, the Romans had to quickly usher him away. And so last week, um, they were going to examine him by scourging. In other words, they were going to torture him, basically, to try to get out of him what was going on. Uh, they never did actually just ask him. He would have told them. But they were assuming certain things about him. They were assuming that he was uh, some rebel, uh, rebellious uh, instigator or something like that. Uh, and so they were going to scourge him and they had him all tied up, ready to go. And he says, is it lawful to, for you to scourge a Roman citizen uncondemned? And it was about that time they realized they were in trouble because according to Roman law, Roman citizens had certain protections. They had assumed about Saul or about Paul that he was uh, just some random rebel, that he was uh, someone of no great consequence. But finding out that he was a Roman citizen changed everything. Roman law had afforded citizens uh, many different protections, similar to the protections that are given to us by current constitutions and laws within uh, the Western world. Roman citizens enjoyed legal protections, uh, enjoyed protections from uh, being beaten and abused and different things like this. Now, in the Roman government, there wasn't so much protections for non-Roman citizens. So the Roman uh, the Roman rulers were used to being able to treat the the common people, the riffraff, the non-Romans, any way that they wanted to without really much uh, recourse. But whenever a Roman was uh, being dealt with, they had certain procedures they had to go by. Okay. And so Paul was, uh, was more than willing to use legal avenues, legal recourse, whenever it was necessary. And so that's what he was doing here. And uh, whenever they have realized that they had violated a Roman citizen's rights, uh, they began to treat Paul much more cautiously, much more uh, carefully, because he could now bring 
accusations against them and possibly bring, uh, bring judgment against them. And so now they're treating him much better. But anyway, the next day they brought him before uh, the Sanhedrin so that the Roman government, uh, the, the Roman officials, could observe a discourse between Paul and his accusers, between Paul and the Jews. And whenever he stood before them, it became apparent very quickly that he wasn't going to get a fair hearing in front of them. Uh, from the very beginning, the first sentence that came out of his mouth, he got physically abused. They slapped him across the face. And so whenever he saw he was not going to get a fair hearing, he took advantage of the opportunity and divided the crowd by speaking of the resurrection of the dead. And he knew that the Jewish people that was there was divided about the fact of the resurrection, even though the Old Testament and the prophets clearly indicated that there was such a thing as a resurrection. The liberal um, Sadducees denied it. The conservative Pharisees held to it. And so whenever he mentioned the resurrection, he put his enemies against one another. And so he turned their focus off of him onto each other, and it broke down into chaos. They dismissed the, the whole thing, and uh, the Roman officials were not any further along than they had been previously. And anyway, after all of that was said and done, Paul is now back waiting in his uh, imprisonment, waiting for the next step, and the Jews are plotting against Paul's life. They're trying to figure out how they can kill Paul, even though now it is passed out of their jurisdiction into Rome's. They don't have any confidence that Rome is going to do anything to Paul because their beef against him is religious, not political. Okay, And so Rome is not going to give them satisfaction. So they say, how do we manipulate the system in a way to give us a favorable outcome? How do we see Paul dead? And now... Bring ourselves back just a moment here. This is the religious leaders. These are the people that are supposed to represent God. These are the people who are supposed to be the custodians of the law and of the scriptures, and they are trying their best to figure out how to kill Paul. Okay? That's pretty messed up, isn't it? But it gives you an idea of religion. And they have nothing that they can really say against him. They just don't like what he believes, and they try to silence it. There's been a history of that all the way down through the ages. Whenever religion is questioned or confronted, and it doesn't have a leg to stand on, it kills its detractors. And so that's what they were trying to do. And so anyway, there was a conspiracy that came up. There was uh, men who had vowed, I think it was 40 men who had vowed they would not eat until Paul was dead. And they talked to the religious leaders and said, speak to the Romans and have them to bring Paul back to be questioned again. Uh, let it seem as if you're just wanting to get more clarity on the situation. You just want to uh, pursue a line of thought a little bit further here. And they're going to buy into it. They're going to be gullible. They'll bring Paul on his way. And as he's on his way, we'll overpower the guards and we'll kill Paul and our problems will be over with. We'll deal with the whatever the Romans do as a result of it later on. And it just so happens that while they were making their plans, that there was a young man, a young boy, who was listening. A man who just, or a boy that just happened to be in the area that they were unaware of, they weren't paying attention to, that heard all of their plotting and all of their scheming, who just happened to be Paul's nephew. And so he listens to all of this, he goes to Paul and he says, Paul, they're planning to have you to come for more questioning and they're going to kill you while you're being transported. 
And Paul says, go and tell the captain of the guard. So he goes, tells the captain of the guard. The captain of the guard listens to him graciously because by now, this man has respect for Paul. Paul has handled himself well. He's behaved himself wisely, and he is gaining respect amongst even his captors. Okay? And so he hears this this young boy whenever he comes with this news, and immediately his response was to take him out of Jerusalem and send him to Caesarea, which was a, uh, a Roman outpost. Okay? This is where Paul is going to be well guarded. And so sends him with a huge... Uh, protective team, basically a whole battalion of soldiers to protect Paul and make sure that he gets to Caesarea safely. So these 40 men who bound themselves with an oath to not eat anything until Paul was dead is going to have a long fast ahead of them. Right. And so anyway, so, uh, Paul is safely to Caesarea, and now that leads us to where we're at today, where Paul is going to have a chance to stand before uh, a higher Roman uh, official, the governor of the land, the one who is there uh, basically representing the Roman government in that entire region. And so he is ascending basically their hierarchy of government. He is standing before uh, greater and more powerful people all the way. He's climbing the chain of command, if you will, standing before these people. And so just a few thoughts here uh, from last week. Uh, Whenever Paul was going through all of this, God was with him the entire way. God was protecting him. He was making sure that the right people were in the right places to hear the things that was going on. God has his men where he needs them at. You know, Even whenever it seems like the governments are all corrupt, everything is going wrong, God is still in control. And he is still able to make things go the way that they need to be. And we also learned as time is going by, uh, in the current age which we live in, Christianity is falling out of favor. Okay? Uh, we have enjoyed for a long season uh, basically the approval or the respect of most of government in the area which we live. Now, there's plenty of places in the world where Christianity and Christians are being persecuted and th- that kind of thing, but not where we're at. So we have... Uh, enjoyed relative peace and comfort, and even somewhat uh, acceptance and promotion within government. But that is fading. That is going away. And so we're going to find that as time goes by, governments and culture is going to become more and more hostile toward Christianity. And as we are looking at Paul here, he is facing great hostility. Uh, We can't even dream of the type of corruption and hostility that Paul is facing. We know our governments are corrupt and different things, but still no way near the, the extent that they were at that age. Okay? We know that there is some hostility, but nowhere near as widespread as it was in those days. Okay? And so we're looking at Paul and the way that he faces the hostility and he faces the corruption, and it is instructive to us as we do face uh, resistance, as we face persecution, as we face those who are antagonistic toward Christianity and toward the gospel, how do we respond? Okay, And so Paul, all the way through this, he has uh, responded with great respect. He has uh, been very measured. He has used a great amount of self-control through this. And all the way through, Paul has behaved himself basically as a prince or as a king. 
though he is a prisoner, and he is standing before corrupt officials that are behaving as what? I mean, it's as if the tables are flipped. It's as if the ones who should be dignified and the ones that should be uh, serving in an honorable way and should be respectable are the opposite. And Paul, who is a prisoner that you would expect to be base, that you would expect to be behaving in such a way of disregard and arrogance and things, of him having honor and having respect, right? But as Paul is doing this, he is above reproach in all that he is doing. He is winning, really, people's favor because of his actions. And here is one lesson to learn from all that we're going through, is we we may not have control over our circumstances, but as Christians, we should have control over our actions, and we should have control over our attitude. Okay? Those two things we can control. We can't control our circumstances, but we can control our actions and our attitude, and Paul is an example of that. So as he stands before these men, he's being mistreated. These men are not respectable people, but Paul is still showing respect toward them. In the day that we live in, we have this idea that respect has to be earned. If they mistreat me, if they abuse me, if they disrespect me, I will return that. And we'll even go to the Bible and say, well, an eye for an eye, and that's a misrepresentation of that, that passage. But Paul looks at these people and say, she says they are in a position of authority, and all authority comes from God. And so Paul, rather than respect them because they're acting respectable, he's respecting them because of their place and of their position. He says they represent authority, they represent leadership, and God is the ultimate example of that. And so in showing them respect, I am showing respect to my Savior. In showing them disrespect, he's showing disrespect to his Savior. We fail to make that, that connection. We say, well, they're not God's representatives. They're not godly people. They're wicked. They're corrupt. They're awful. But God is the one who instituted government. God is the one who, if you go back to the times of Noah, whenever Noah stepped off the ark, God gave Noah the dispensation of law, of government. And he says, you have the ability to rule over man. You have the ability to, uh, to enact justice to be able to punish men all the way up to the point of death for their crimes. And so God gave mankind that authority to bring about government, to bring about judgment, to bring about justice, and that was originated with God. And so whether or not the individual is respectable, we must respect the institution. Okay, And this is what Paul is doing over and over again. And if we want to try to negate our obligation to pray for those who are in authority over us, to respect those who are in authority over us, if we want to negate that because of their behavior, we look at Paul's example here, and there was not a single one of those people that he was facing that was respectable, yet Paul had respect toward them. Even whenever uh, Ananias had him... Uh, slapped across the face contrary to the law, and Paul rebuked him for doing so. Whenever he realized that this man was in an office, he was in a position, he was the high priest, Paul backed up, he apologized, and then he showed respect and reverence. Okay? 
that is hard for us in our human flesh to comprehend, even harder to practice. Okay? And so as we're looking at this, we're going to find today that Paul is going to stand before three different uh, governmental uh, representatives. He's going to give a he's going to have a chance to give an account of himself, to give a defense of himself to three different uh, rulers. Okay, and in all three of these scenarios, you find almost a, a David and Goliath dynamic. Okay, because Paul is coming as a prisoner. He's coming in rags. He's coming probably uh, dirty and unbathed and unkept and everything because he's been in prison. He's been chained up, right? And he probably looks like a hobo or a homeless person as he's coming into the courtroom and he is being surrounded by all of the elegance and all of the pomp of the Roman sophistry, okay? All these different things that's going on, he's going to have uh, these men who have crowns and gold and uh, rich apparel, and he's going to be in uh, courtrooms of marble and palaces and things. And here is a man that looks like a beggar standing before the king, but he is representing the king of kings, and he is preaching the gospel to these people. And it's an amazing story for me. And time and again, Paul is coming and behaving himself royalty, royally, basically, standing in front of these corrupt men. He is representing his Savior well, and I believe the only way that Paul is able to do this is that he has a walk with God. He is filled with the Spirit. He is walking with his Savior. He is constantly, daily abiding with the Lord, and the Lord is giving him the ability even to stand in front of these uh, wicked men and to be a shining and a beaming light of the Savior in front of them. And it is only by walking with God, it is only by seeking His face, it is only by putting our love, our devotion, our attention on God and allowing His Holy Spirit to work through us that we can behave ourselves well in adverse situations like Paul did. Okay? Otherwise, our flesh is going to take the wheel. Our flesh is going to be the one in charge. And basically what we're going to end up having happen whenever uh, we don't get our way, whenever uh, we get in difficult situations, whenever we're being persecuted, we are going to lash out in the flesh and we're going to do the kind of things we saw in Dublin this week. Yeah. Right? And so as we come to chapter number 24, I want to cover quite a bit of ground, so I'm not going to read through everything, but I want to read a little bit of this to get us going, and then I want to give a little bit of an overview for the sake of time and content, okay? So in Acts chapter 24, we'll read in verse number one and following. It says, and after five days, this is Paul now in Caesarea, okay? Paul has been transported by this great entourage of uh, soldiers and things. And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain order named uh, Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, See, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear of us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, 
and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. So as we look at this passage, this is the accusation that comes against Paul. After the five days, the high priest Ananias, the one that had uh, Paul slapped contrary to the law, and his lackeys, if you will, comes to Caesarea, and they stand before Felix, and they bring with them an orator, a professional speaker. They bring a lawyer. And he behaves and speaks as you would expect a lawyer to behave and to speak. Okay? So this man comes down, and they are bringing him, hoping to win favor of Felix. Most likely, he would have been a Hellenistic Jew. He would have been uh, well-versed in the Greek and the Greek traditions and the language and things. So he's going to be more impressive to this man. And so as he stands up to speak, he is heaping praise on Felix. He is bringing about flattery. That's what he's doing. He's flattering the judge. And it's all complete nonsense. Because Felix is a very, for lack of better words, he's a horrible person. He has uh, behaved wickedly. He was very much had a bad reputation amongst all the people around them. The people of that area knew he was a scoundrel. They knew it. But that's not what this lawyer is saying. They're not saying, hey, you've been corrupt. You have mistreated the Jews. You have behaved badly. We know that you are pompous. We know that you are arrogant. We know that you are self-seeking and that you have uh, stomped on everybody else to get to your place. He doesn't say that. He goes down through all this list of flatteries that, oh, you have been so beneficial and so good to us, and we're so thankful for how well you have treated us and all the things that you have brought to us. It's all complete nonsense. What he is doing, he is flattering the judge, trying to win favor over from this guy because history tells us that this man was not any of these things. Okay? And so he wraps it up. He says, oh, I don't want to trouble you too long. I don't want to be too tedious. Let me just tell you about this guy. We said he, uh, They said he is a pestilent fellow. Paul, all the way through, no matter where he has traveled, uh, he has been accused of many things and none of the charges stick because they have always been false. It's not that he is stirring up the crowd. It's that the crowd is stirring itself up against him because it doesn't want to hear what he has to say. Paul isn't an instigator. He isn't coming in and whooping up the mob into a frenzy. It is those who are standing against him. It is the ones that are uh, accusing him of these things that are guilty. Okay? And so it says he is a pestilent fellow. They're saying he's a troublemaker, a mover of sedition. In other words, he is trying to cause people to rebel against the govern- government. That is a huge charge with him standing before the Romans because the Romans are seeking peace. And they will put down anyone who rebels, anyone who incites violence or rebellion, they will put them down immediately. And so they are trying to put forth some sort of a charge that the Romans will latch on to. But they know they don't have a leg to stand on. The only reason that Paul is there is because he is preaching Jesus Christ as the Messiah. 
That's the only reason. And if they came there and stood before the Romans and says, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah and we don't believe that, the Romans going to look at him and say, you're stupid, go home. Right? They're not going to be troubled. They're not going to be bothered by these religious affairs. They're not going to be paying any attention to this. So they have to bring up something that is going to stick in the Romans' minds. And so they say he's a mover of sedition. And it says that um, not just there, but throughout the world, all the Roman, it's not just a localized thing. Everywhere he goes, he's causing problems. But the Romans also knew that the Jews, everywhere they went, caused problems. They had an arrogance. They had a hostility because they thought they were God's chosen people and they had a place of favor. And yes, they were God's chosen people, but they were to be witnesses, not to be rulers. Okay? And so anyway, it says that he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. These are all carefully chosen terms to bring Paul down to a place where he is a target for the Romans. Okay? So if he is a a ringleader, that gives you definitely the idea that, okay, he's the head of the thugs. Now, keep in mind that Felix is looking at Paul, an old man by this time, probably looking older than what he actually is, standing there meek and mild, chained, patiently awaiting his turn to speak. He's not making a fuss. He's not uh, throwing out curses and slander. He is standing there composed, and mild, while they're hurling all these insults, hurling all these accusations against him. And there is got to be some sort of a disconnect here in Felix's mind. He's like, okay, this is the man that you're talking about. This is the one that's a mover of sedition. This is the one that is a ringleader of a sect, which is the idea of uh, basically a splintered group. Uh, They are... Uh, some of the outsiders. They are some of the, um, basically, uh, the idea of a cult, okay? Of the Nazarenes. They're not, they don't dare to call them Christians. They don't dare to call them anything associated with the Messiah because they do believe in Christ and in the Messiah, but they don't believe that Jesus is him. But they bring out Nazareth, which is a tiny backwoods village, of no consequence, of no importance. So they're making him out as if he is a fringe coop from the middle of nowhere that causes problems. That's why that's why they painted him. Who also hath gone about to profane the temple. Now, the Romans wouldn't have cared about that. But they were saying that he brought in uh, Greeks and brought in Gentiles to the temple. And it says, we would have judged him according to our law, but your man stepped in and messed it all up. Is that what happened? No, they were looking for mob violence. They were coming in for mob justice. They were going to go and they were going to kill him. And the the Roman soldier stepped in and kept them from killing an innocent man to bring Paul to justice, right? But they said, we were trying him according to our law. He made it out as if it was a civil court, as if they were judging him, as if they were carrying out a sentence against him. And the Romans just came in and messed it all up and brought violence upon the Jews. None of this was the case. It's laughable, right? But verse number nine, 
It says, and all the Jews assented, saying these things were so. So this lawyer just comes and spouts this whole line of garbage off about Paul, saying that all of these things against Paul, how big of a troublemaker he was, and the Jews are sitting there saying, yep, yep, that's right, yep, that's who he is. And so if we start thinking that the politicians are corrupt, they're not the only ones. The religious leaders were as well. And so in verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge in this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. So whenever Paul has a chance to answer for himself, he speaks respectfully. He is not using, he's not using flattery. The things that he is saying is true. He says, Felix, I know you have been a ruler of our area for some time. So because you have been here for a while, unlike most of the other Romans around, you have an understanding of the Jewish culture and the politics of this region. And so he says, I'm glad I'm able to answer before you because you know how things work. So as Paul is looking at this, he realizes, though, Felix is not a good man. He is at least a man that's been around long enough to know how the politics and how the, the culture works. And so he says, I'm able to answer you, and you're going to understand the things that I'm saying. And he says simply, this is a religious dispute. Right? That's what he tells Felix. This is a religious dispute. He says, uh, for one thing, all of their charges that was against him, he says, I had barely come to Jerusalem. I'm hardly having a chance to work up a big riot or rebellion because I just recently arrived in Jerusalem. How long did it say that he'd been there? said so 12 days, he had been in five days in Caesarea. Okay, so that gives us seven days. He was imprisoned another day back in Jerusalem. And so he was a total of five or six days in Jerusalem. He said that's hardly enough time to work up a rebellion and a riot. On top of that, the days that I was there, I was in the temple daily, and I wasn't disputing with any man. I wasn't causing a problem. I was going about, I was holding to the traditions of my people, I was being a good Jew, wasn't causing problems. And so he says, I wasn't raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. He says, they have no evidence. It's all phony. There's nothing to back it up. And so anyway, he says, the one thing that I am guilty of, he says, I does I I does. I do have a confession. I do have a confession to make. He says, I am guilty of worshiping in a way they don't approve of because I believe the scriptures. He says, I hold to the Bible. I believe everything that is written in the, the law and the prophets. And because I believe the Bible and I take it literally, 
I worship God in a way that they don't because they have rejected God's word. They have rejected the truth of God's word and they have rejected God's savior. And so he says, here I stand on the word of God. I'm going to cling fast to the Bible. I have scriptural reasons for what I believe. And so that is the only thing I'm guilty of is I have followed the word of God and they have rejected it. And so they're mad at me. And so he comes down to verse 15, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there should be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. And so he says, I have, <clears throat> excuse me, I have just done the things that the Jews have been teaching for years. They have been teaching that there would be a Messiah. They are they have taught that there would be a resurrection, and I believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I believe he resurrected, and I live my life in such a way to always have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. He says, I live my life to make sure that I'm always, uh, I'm always innocent. I'm always guiltless before God and man. Paul was a model citizen, okay? He believed the word of God, and he lived according to what the Word of God said, and he lived and abided by the laws of man. And that's what he said as he stood there. And so now he takes a turn, okay? And he starts talking about this resurrection. He starts talking about Jesus. And he says, I've come uh, to bring, my, uh, bring alms to my nation and offerings, and the Jews found me in the temple, purified, neither with multitude or tumult. He says, they should have been here to object if they had anything against me, or else these, uh, these same here say, uh, or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before them, except it be for this one voice I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I'm called in question of you this day. Uh, we'll get, uh, I misspoke there a minute ago. We'll get into where he talks about uh, the gospel in just a minute. But anyway, he tells them uh, the only thing that I've done before them. They have nothing to accuse me of. They have no evidence against me. Uh, the reason I'm standing here is that I, whenever I faced the Sanhedrin, I spoke this thing about the resurrection, and I caused a, a riot, basically, in the Sanhedrin. And so that's why they have rushed me to your presence. Really, he should have been let go in Jerusalem. He never should have moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It never should have escalated that far. But he says, these people are intent on killing me. They're intent on lying against me. They don't like what I believe and what I teach, even though it's all according to the word of God. And so anyway, that brings us to Felix's response in verse 22. Felix heard these things having more perfect knowledge of that way. It means that Felix knew about Christianity. He had a knowledge of the things of Christ. That's what it means where it says that way. And he deferred them and said, when Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintances to minister or to come unto him. And so that was the end of this fiasco, I guess. All of the Jews from Jerusalem came down, made their accusations against Paul. 
Felix heard it all. He knew it was rubbish. Paul said, it's a religious matter. They just don't like what I believe. And Felix says, okay, well, there's got to be more to it than that. I'm going to wait and I'm going to hear from my man in Jerusalem, from Lysias, the one that had arrested Paul. And whenever I hear from him, then I'll be able to make judgment on this. But until that time, Paul, um, you're kind of under house arrest. Your friends, your companions can come to you. You can have uh, basic liberties that are afforded to a Roman citizen, but you're still a captive of Rome. And so he sends the Jews away. They don't get satisfaction. And Paul does not get freedom. Okay? And so this is really a travesty of justice. Felix knows that Paul is innocent. Felix knows that Paul hasn't done anything, but Felix is still a coward. Okay? I've talked about his corruption, his pride, and things like that, but here's the deal. Being a Roman representative in Jerusalem and in Israel, his main job was to keep the peace. And to keep the peace, he would compromise. To keep the peace, he would do things just to satisfy the Jews so that they don't cause problems because problems look bad on him. Peace looks good on him. And so if it takes him imprisoning an innocent man, if it takes him killing an innocent man, he's perfectly okay with that as long as it keeps the Jews happy, it makes him look good, and he stays in his position. That's what's going on with this. And so we don't have any record of the chief captain coming down and telling his story to Felix and to the the council that's there. But it does tell us, coming down to verse number 24, and I realize I'm reading pretty much all this chapter now, but it's interesting to me the way all of this pans out and the, the, the politics in it, okay? I don't know if it is to you guys or not, but it is to me. But in verse number 24, it says, After certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for uh, Paul and heard him concerning the faith, And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room And Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. So this went on for two years longer. Okay, Now I want to get into just a little bit of the backstory behind this. Because just reading this, we don't know who these characters are. We don't know what they're about. We don't know what happens. But history tells us a good bit about them. Okay, So we, we know that Felix was there for a good amount of time. He had ruled in the area for around 10 or 12 years. He was familiar with the goings on of the, the Jewish people. Not only that, but he was also married to a Jewess, this woman by the name of Drusilla. Now, Drusilla is an interesting person because she is the daughter of Herod Agrippa. Anyone remember that name? Okay, Herod Agrippa comes from the line of the Herods. There's four different Herods, okay? So don't get them confused in your mind. But there is the first Herod, and he was the one who uh, commanded the slaughter of the innocents at Jesus' birth. Remember whenever he came and killed all the babies in Bethlehem? Yeah. That was Herod the, the first. Herod the second is the one that killed John the Baptist. Okay. okay? Herod the third is Herod Agrippa, or Agrippa the first. And he is the one that killed James, that arrested Peter, and planned to 
to kill Peter, but then Peter was released by the angel. Remember that story? Okay, and so Herod Agrippa, Agrippa I, is the father of Drusilla. Okay? Everybody still staying with me? Okay, so he is the father of Drusilla, and he's also the father of Agrippa II, which we'll see here in a minute. And Agrippa II was the last of the Herods. And he is the one whom Paul is going to stand before here in a minute. And so anyway, Felix is married to a very significant person in the whole story of the New Testament because she is the daughter of the one that has been intertwined with the entire life of Jesus. Okay? And so anyway, he is he's married to this woman, and they both come together basically using Paul as a means of entertainment. Because Paul has behaved himself well, he has proved himself to be extremely knowledgeable, well-traveled, scholarly. This would have been an incredible opportunity for uh, Felix because Paul had traveled all throughout the Roman Empire. He had been to many different places. He could tell stories. He's been through so much. And on top of that, he had so much knowledge about the workings of the Roman government beyond where uh, Felix had been all of his life. You know, Felix had basically just been a yes man to these Roman rulers, and he has got his place of uh, governing here based on his connections. And so he's been in one place for a long time, and so Paul has all these things to tell about the goings-on of the Roman government. So he says, okay, Paul, come on up, talk to me. I want to hear you. Uh, This will be uh, an interesting evening. Come on up, maybe invite him for dinner or something. And so Felix and his wife are sitting before Paul, and Paul, sitting before these rulers who are probably arrayed in gorgeous apparel and all these things, Paul the prisoner is brought in, and he begins to reason with them of righteousness and temperance, all these different things. And it says as Paul was basically preaching the gospel to these very wicked but very elite people, that it came to the place, it says, that Felix trembled. Now that is an incredible statement because Felix was arrogant. He was proud. He was well-connected. He was a, a very hardened man. And he came to the place that he was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He came to the place that he realized that what Paul was saying was right. He realized that Paul's words were true, and he came to the place the Holy Spirit was working on his heart, drawing him unto himself. Paul wanted to see this corrupt and wicked man be born again. Paul was seeking this man's soul, and so was God. So was his Holy Spirit drawing this man, and Felix, whenever he came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, rather than surrendering, he resisted. He says, that's far enough. You've went too far. I I can't handle the pressure. I can't handle these feelings. And so I'm just going to shut you down. And I've talked to people. I've shared the gospel with people. And I've seen multiple people get to this place where they, the Holy Spirit starts working with them. It starts resonating in their mind and their heart. They know what I'm saying is true. And they say, no. And so he says, go away. I'll call for you when it's more convenient. Some other time, Paul. I want to hear more about this, but not right now. And so Paul has no choice. He has to leave. And Felix has rejected an offer of salvation as God was dealing with him. 
and he begins hardening himself toward the gospel. It says that he sent to Paul often, and he was hoping that because Paul had collected this great offering amongst the Gentiles and brought it to Jerusalem, that Paul has all these connections, he's well-traveled and all these things, that all the people that he has ministered to, all the people who love Paul, would offer up a bribe to get Felix to release him. So that lets us in on the idea that Felix knew that Paul was innocent, and he knew that he could release him, but he knew in releasing him that the Jews would get mad. So in order for him to deal with the Jews getting mad, he has to receive enough money from Paul to make it worth his while. That's, that's messed up, right? He says, I'm not just going to let you go unless I profit from this because then I'm going to have trouble with the Jews. So give me enough money, I'll let you go and I'll deal with them. And Paul says, I'm not going to bribe you. I'm going to trust in God to work all these things together for my good. And Paul stays in jail for two more years. Now it tells us that in, as we come to chapter 25, and I can't go down verse by verse like I've been doing, but whenever we come to chapter 25, uh, Paul is standing before a different man. What happens here is that there was an uprising that the Jews uh, revolted against the Romans and Felix was forced to use great violence to put down the rebellion. And so there was bloodshed, there was death, there was a great uproar. And remember, I said his job was to keep the peace. So since he failed to keep the peace and he resorted to violence against the Jews, he wasn't popular with the Jews, he wasn't popular with Rome, and he got recalled. Rome said, okay, you're not doing a good job there, and you have uh, basically overstayed your welcome because of the way you handled things, so get out of Israel, come back to Rome. And so Felix left the place, and it says, to show the Jews a pleasure, he left Paul bound. So he's already undercut uh, the Roman favor in Israel, and so he says, I can't do one more on that. I can't add insult to injury by letting Paul go. So to kind of smooth things over with the Jews a little bit, I'm going to leave, leave Paul in prison. Okay? And so this is what he does. So Felix is out of there. He goes back to Rome, and Paul is still left in prison. Now Festus comes in. Okay? And Festus is probably more of a scoundrel than Felix was. He is extremely arrogant. He's extremely closed off. He is not familiar with, uh, with Jewish politics. He's not uh, familiar with their uh, culture and things. He comes in as a Roman, and he is ready to be, I guess, make his name in the region uh, because this is his opportunity to shine. He's going to come in. He's going to clean up the mess that Felix left behind. And so whenever he comes, one of the first things he does within days of taking his position, he goes down to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and he meets with the, the Jews, and he's on basically a PR tour, okay? He's going in, and he's trying to win over all these people in Jerusalem, and the religious leaders have not forgotten about Paul, who's been locked in prison for two years. Now, this is some bitterness. This is some resentment. This is a, a grudge that won't go away, because they should have moved on after two years, Right. But but the first thing in their mind whenever a new leader comes in is Paul still in jail and we haven't killed him yet. So he barely makes it into town and they come to him and says, Oh, by the way, you have a prisoner back in Caesarea, we want him dead. And he tells them, I'm not going to bring him back to Jerusalem, but you come down to Caesarea 
and I'll hear you out. He stays a little bit longer there in Jerusalem. He's you know shaking hands and kissing babies and trying to make up with the Jewish people. And then whenever he goes back to Caesarea, he brings uh, the religious leaders with him to hear Paul. And as they come before uh, Festus now, uh, let me see. Verse number seven of chapter 25. And when he was come down, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Okay, now this is dumb. Just to be honest with you, this is dumb. Okay, so he comes back down to Caesarea. The Jews are there. They make all their lies and all their accusations against Paul. And Paul says, I have done nothing wrong. I have answered for myself already. The record is already there. You can read over it. You can see it. You can see the Jews and how worked up they are, how violent they are, how calm I've been. And so he says, I have nothing that I've done wrong. And so Festus being the showman, he says, okay, Paul, since you've done nothing wrong, how about I take you back to Jerusalem? How about you stand before your accusers there? And what the Jews are hoping for is that if Paul comes back to Jerusalem, they get a chance to kill him. I guess these guys who bound themselves with a vow two years ago still haven't eaten. <laughs> and so they're still waiting to kill him. And so this is the idea. And he says, we've already went that route. I've already escalated in judgment beyond the Sanhedrin. I'm now standing before the Romans. It would be foolish for you to throw it back to a lesser uh, a lesser government, a lesser court. And so anyway, this is just all a, an exercise in showmanship. It's him making light of Paul for the pleasure of the Jews. And Paul is at risk. Basically, Festus is going to offer up Paul on the altar of politics. He knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, that Paul is going to die. And so basically Festus is saying, I'm going to, to throw Daniel in the lion's den here just to satisfy the Jews. Okay, this is what's going on. And Festus knows it. And so Paul stands before him and he says, uh, I'll go ahead and read verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. And the Jews, and to the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of those things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. And so as Felix is, or excuse me, as Festus is going through his whole political charade, he makes a misstep. He's been judging Paul as being very mild-mannered, as being uh, very submissive and whatnot, as Paul has seemed to be. But Paul has a backbone when he needs it. Right. And so what's going on here? Festus knows he is innocent. Festus knows the Jews are going to kill him. Festus is willing to make that sacrifice. But he also should know that Paul is a Roman citizen with certain rights, one of which of those rights is the right of every Roman citizen to appeal any sentence or any matter directly to Caesar. 
As a Roman citizen, he could go all the way to the top. And this was generally just reserved to appeal uh, sentences that they felt was unfair. If a Roman citizen was sentenced to something, he could say, I appeal to Caesar. He'd go to Caesar. Caesar would rule on it. And Caesar was believed to be a god. His word was final. Okay? And so now, because they've been playing games and they haven't released Paul, now Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, why would he be in trouble? Well, because now he's going to send an obviously innocent man to Caesar and waste Caesar's time, and it's going to be evidence that Festus has been playing games, that he is corrupt, that he is inept, that he can't do his job. So imagine being Caesar, the highest man of the Roman Empire, having a prisoner brought before you who is obviously innocent, who is a Roman citizen, who should have been released years ago, and now he comes and uh, takes up your valuable time on your busy schedule when Festus should have taken care of it, when Felix should have taken care of it, and now all these Roman officials have dropped the ball, they have done foolishly, and now it's wasting Caesar's time. How, how do you think that's going to look on these men? So now Festus is scrambling. He has no recourse if a Roman citizen appeals to, to uh, Caesar, that is their right. It must be upheld. Yeah. And for him to refuse to send him to Caesar would be his position or his life for depriving a Roman citizen of their right. Okay? And so now he's stuck. He's scratching his head. He says, what can I write on the indictment? What can I write for an accusation against Paul that will at least soften Caesar's uh, opinion of me that is going to rescue my reputation and my position whenever Paul stands before Caesar. He's stuck. And so the first one that Paul stood before was Felix, and he shared the gospel with him. He preached the gospel to him, and Felix was under conviction, and Felix refused to listen. He stood before Festus, and Festus was completely obstinate. He was unwilling to hear. He was proud. He was arrogant. And he made a mockery of God's man. Okay? And so as Paul is being a witness to these guys, we're seeing a difference in the way they respond and the way they act. Uh, Festus wasn't open to it whatsoever. He came in there. He was a Roman. He cared nothing about the Jews. He cared nothing about the, the Jewish law. He cared nothing about Christianity. And as he continues in this chapter... He's now going to start talking to Agrippa, and he calls the things of the Jews superstitions. He makes light of the things of God. And so he's just, he's a good picture of the average scoffer, the modern-day fool, yeah. who has no place, no time for the things of God. They've got their own things going on. <laughs> and so that brings us to our final one, and I'm going to have to close here in just a minute. But our final one that we come to is Agrippa. And Agrippa, though it says that he's a king, that title kind of throws us off a little bit. He is a Jewish leader. Mm -hmm. Okay? Kind of. He's a part Jew who has a favor of the people of Israel. He's of the line of the Herods. He is trying to play the political game to keep power, to keep favor, to keep all of the the 
perks of his position, all of the wealth and things coming in. And so, as I said, he is the fourth in the line, the dynasty of the Herods, but he is still underneath Festus. So if we look at the hierarchy here, he is a lesser, even though he's titled king. So he comes below Festus in the, the chain of command. But Festus is struggling here. He is troubled. He's trying to figure out what can I write? What can I send to uh, Caesar whenever Paul goes there? And so he calls in Agrippa, thinking that maybe Agrippa will be able to hear the matter, listen to it, if nothing else, be entertained by it. And he'll be able to help Festus out a little bit with something to write to, uh, to Caesar. So this is the hope. And I don't have time to read it. We need to be wrapping up here. But whenever we look at the rest of chapter number 25, he comes and confides in Agrippa. He says, they brought this prisoner to me, and he wasn't guilty of doing anything that I figured it would have been. It was just things to do with their laws and their superstition and their religion and whatnot. Now he's, I've played my games. He appealed to Caesar, and now I have nothing to write. I want you to hear him and see what you think. He's like, yeah, sure, I'll listen to it. It'll be fun. And so Agrippa comes with his sister Bernice, okay? Bernice and Agrippa are both the children of Herod Agrippa I, the one that killed James, wanted to kill Peter. They're the children of, uh, of this man. They're also rumored or speculated to have been involved in an incestuous relationship with each other. Everywhere they went, they traveled together, and they seemed very, very fond of each other. And so the rumor mill in Israel at that time was that Agrippa and Bernice were sibling lovers. So this gives you another idea of who Paul is standing before. Okay? So anyway, whenever you've got Festus here, you've got Agrippa, you've got Bernice, they all come in. There's the, the pomp and the royalty. They're arrayed in their best robes. They've got the entire court. They've got officers. They've got the elite of that region all gathered in one room with all eyes on Paul. So as they come in, they make their entrances. The trumpets are sounded. The music is played. All of the the uh, introductions are made and you know, it's a grand time. It, remind, it would remind you of, uh, you know, the coronation in Buckingham Palace. This is the things that was going on. And so they come and they announce before everyone what's going on. And then they bring Paul in his chains and in his rags and throw him down in front of everyone. Remember how I said earlier it was like David and Goliath? This is what you would have had going on here. Paul in his rags, in his chains, standing in the middle of this gorgeously... Uh, um, decorated place with all these dignitaries before him dressed in their best, their royal garb, making this great appearance as Festus and Agrippa come together, two local rulers, to preside over this and help bring about peace and things in the region. All a bunch of baloney, right? And so Paul comes in and stands before them. And rather than him thrusting his sword and making his defense and lashing out against everybody and calling out all of their hypocrisies and their sins and their wickedness, calling out 
uh, Agrippa and Bernice for their their sick relationship, calling out Festus for his hypocrisy, calling out all of these different. Rather than doing all of that, he comes before them, says, you guys already know I've done nothing wrong. Let me tell you my story. And this is the second time that Paul goes through his entire testimony. And he stands before them and he says, I was born a Jew. I was raised up the most strictest sect of the Jews. I persecuted the Christians. I wanted to kill them. But on the Damascus Road, I met Jesus. He turned my life around. He gave me a new purpose. He gave me a new meaning. And he sent me to pursue after the Gentiles, which Festus was. He told me that the Jews wouldn't listen to me. He didn't. He told me they didn't want to hear what I had to say, but he sent me to the rest of the world because my God loves all men, loves all sinners. He wants to see all men saved, and so do I. And he preaches the gospel to them. And he even pleads with them at the very first. He says, this is going to be long, but I plead with you, hear me out, give me a chance. And so with all of the top brass, all of the ranking people of society standing before him, he stands up, gives his testimony, preaches the gospel, and offers an invitation. That's amazing. Yeah. Is that what your response would be if you had a, an audience with the Doyle down in, down in Dublin? If you were accused and if you were falsely imprisoned for two years, and then they bring you up and they set you in front of the highest court of the country, and you have an opportunity to speak your peace, speak your on your behalf, are you going to go and you're going to tell them about Christ? That's what Paul did. And so he preaches the gospel before him, and it gets to the place where he talks in verse number 23 that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and also to the Gentiles. Verse 24, and as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, okay, he's speaking out, he's mocking Paul, he's basically, he's a windbag, okay? Speaking with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. He calls Paul crazy whenever Paul starts speaking of the resurrection. And Paul's defense is, why should it be an incredible thing that the God that created everything could bring a man back to life? Why is that so hard to believe? And then he turns his attention to Agrippa, and he says, Agrippa, none of these things were done in a corner. None of these things were done in hiding. You have been around long enough. You have observed enough. You know the truth of God's word. You know all the prophecies that have been foretold. You know the Jewish religion and how they are looking for the Messiah. You know about Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial. You know about his right. He says, you know about all of these things. And verse number 27, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. This is incredible coming from Paul. He asks Agrippa to affirm, do you believe what the word of God says? And he says, I know that you do. Paul's not lying. Paul is very astute. He's very wise. He's very aware of what's going on. And he's also led of the Holy Spirit. And he looks straight at Agrippa. He says, I know you believe. And Agrippa's response was, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now, we often read that as, I'm, I'm this close. But remember the, the context of where he's at. Agrippa has all eyes of the most important people of the land on him. He knows that Festus is ridiculing, and Festus is his superior. 
And so what Agrippa's statement means is, whenever he says almost, he says so quickly. In so little time, you expect me. He understands what Paul's doing. He says, you are trying to convert me. He understands that Paul is calling for a decision. And he's saying it's going to take more than that to convert me. That is his statement to Paul. He says it's going to take more than that. He says, I am not willing, though I believe, and Paul says, I know you believe. He says, I'm not willing to give up my position. I'm not willing to give up the respect of all these people. I'm not willing to pay what it's going to cost for me to become a Christian. Because here's the thing. Salvation is free, but being a Christian can be costly. It can cost you relationships. It can cost you positions. It can cost you, especially if you're in a place of prominence like uh, Agrippa was in. He says, I'm I'm not willing to pay the price that it's going to cost me to become a Christian. Because here's the thing. As Paul looked around at all of this, he says, these men in front of me, they have gained the whole world. They have power, they have position, they have possessions. They have everything that mankind desires in this life, but they don't have Jesus. But Paul, he has nothing. He has no position, no possessions. He has been mocked and ridiculed and scorned. He's been imprisoned, but he knows in light of eternity that the tables would soon turn. That whenever eternity was revealed, that Paul was going to be the one who was rewarded. Paul was going to be the one that was setting in a position of power and of prestige. He was going to be one of the ones on the thrones judging the world with his Savior in eternity. And these men have thrown away all of eternity for that little vapor of life. They have gained the whole world. They have lost their own soul. Paul is able to say, I'm willing to go through a little bit of suffering in light of eternity. But Festus and Felix and Agrippa looked at it, and they said, I'm not willing to suffer a little bit of discomfort here on this earth to become a Christian. I'll not lose this life to gain that one. And Paul says, I've gained that one, and this one's worthless. What an illustration is for us. It doesn't matter what happens to us in this life. It doesn't matter what people put us through. It doesn't matter if we are persecuted, if we are mocked, if we are scorned, if we are rejected on this life. Because at the moment I close my eyes in death, I'm going to behold the face of my Savior. I'm going to be able to see the place that he has prepared. I'm going to have all glory around me, and the troubles and trials of this earth will be past. And I'm not willing to sacrifice that for this. But they sacrificed that for that short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And another sad thing about it here, as Agrippa was sitting here, he was sitting there with Bernice, and Festus walked away. Agrippa walked away. Bernice walked away. Previously, Drusilla walked away. And all of these people are leading all of those that they have influence over, all of those that they care about, all those that they love in their lives. They are leading them to turn their backs on Christ as well. And so Paul is basically saying, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. He says, I'm going to go. It doesn't matter. You can kill me, but I have already settled eternity. You may prosper down here, but I have riches awaiting me that can't compare. Mm -hmm. And so he stood and he proclaimed and he represented Christ well. 
the final thoughts on this, and I know I went too long. Final thoughts on this is throughout this entire fiasco, Paul has continued to keep in self-control. He's continued to honor Christ through his actions, his attitude, all the things that he was doing, regardless of what these people and the devil threw at him. He was behaving himself wisely. He was operating with decorum, with respect. And there was not a man there that could say that Paul was ever out of line in any of this. How should we act whenever we are reproached? How should we act whenever there are those who mock or ridicule? How should we act whenever things don't go our way? How should we react whenever things aren't fair? Do we squeal and scream and holler? Do we say my rights and do do we shout down the judges? Do we accuse all of the politicians? What do we do? We behave ourselves wisely. We operate with dignity and respect because we are the children of a king. Right. We represent him. And while Paul walked in front of all of these elevated losers, <laughs> right? Yeah. And Paul appeared to be the, the loser. He was a winner in it all, wasn't he? Other than the clothing and the the place that they were seated, the roles were completely changed. Paul was the one that behaved as a prince, yeah. while the rest of them acted like fools. As Christians, we can't act the fool when we represent Christ. Right. He is in charge. He is in control. He is able to defend us, to protect us, to guide our steps. He will take us home at the end. And so if we put our faith and trust in Christ, not just for salvation, but for all of our lives, we can walk confidently. We can continue onward trusting Christ with whatever lay before us, knowing that ultimately we're going to be in glory with him. Mm -hmm. And that completely changes how we go through every circumstance. So does anyone have anything, any questions, comments, or anything on what we looked at this morning? Okay, if we have nothing, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll take a short break and get back and get into Scripture. Uh, dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And we thank you for the uh, the example that Paul has. Lord, I know, uh, I know that in myself there's no way that uh, short of a lot of help from you and your Holy Spirit that I could behave the way that Paul did in such circumstances. But, Lord, we do love you. We desire to represent you well. Help us, Lord, not to act the fool when we're reproached. Help us to trust you, to, to lead us through uh, any kind of uh, circumstances, Lord, and help us, Lord, that we would control our actions and our attitude whenever we can't control the circumstances. Lord, we do love you and we praise you. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.